Decision Manitoba 2019, the podcast. Hi, I'm Richard Cluche with Liberal leader Dougald Lamont, a candidate who was in the backrooms of the Liberal campaigns, federal and provincial. But now, he's the leader. I've been doing politics for a long time. I've worked on about a campaign a year, every year, since about 2003. I moved back to Winnipeg from Toronto in 2002. So in, over that time, you, you learn a lot. Look, we didn't win much, right? <laughs> so for the first while. So uh, I often tell people there's nothing, nothing teaches you like failure. I don't go out of your way to do it. Uh, but um, with a bunch of other people, we learned a lot. And some of it is when I, there's always a gap between what people say, like as a politician, you'll hear some politician going on about something. And then if you're in the thick of it and you're in the front lines, you'll just say, there's no connection with reality. So part of it is that I want to actually, I recognize that there are a whole bunch of serious problems in Manitoba that we've got, whether it's healthcare or jobs or the environment. And I don't see the other parties seriously addressing them. And, and I wanted to be able to provide an option for people to vote for, that they could feel good voting for. It's tough because in Western Canada, you've seen provincial, provincially mm-hmm. a two-party system, if you will. Ontario okay, has yeah. three parties. And Manitoba seems to be, you know, this anomaly in in the sense that you've always had this progressive, conservative, new Democrat, and the Liberals hanging out. And other than 1988, when Sharon Carstairs, you know, took a lot of seats here in Winnipeg, the Liberals have been that distant third party. What is it about our system in Manitoba that tends to, to, to give, you know, the Liberal Party and provincial politics, you know, 18, 20% support, yeah. but doesn't give you the seats that you want and you need. Well, part of it is actually, I think the vote in Manitoba is a progressive vote. And, and so some of it is that it's anybody but conservatives. So if there's only one option, people will, and look, and people are told this at the door over and over. If you want to, if you're NDP or, and you want to stop the PCs, vote, vote NDP. Actually, if not, if you're NDP, if you want to stop the PCs, you got to vote for the NDP. If you want to stop uh, the NDP, you got to vote PC. And that, that the one question here is whether that's changed, right? Is that I think there are people who are not happy with what happened with the, P- the Palestra PCs. So I, there's a lot of PCs that I've talked to anyway, who aren't happy. Um, and the other is that there's still, the NDP still has a fair bit of baggage. So there's an opportunity here for us. Um, and historically it's, there's, I sometimes say that the real, the real key to success in politics is being lucky in your choice of opponents. Uh, so it's not just about who I am or what the Liberals were, it's what they were up against as well. So, so when you talk to voters, either out the door or in interviews, yeah. what makes you folks different? I mean, part of it is that <laughs> we actually want to get things done. If you look at our ideas, uh, we do have a bunch of big ideas that really want to tackle things like infrastructure or healthcare or in the environment. Um, and some of it is we have the advantage of not having a ton of baggage. Uh, we can we, we can approach this in a fresh way. Um, but at the same time, we've we've recruited a whole ton of candidates who are really good. But the other is that we tried to set a tone in this campaign, but also just as in the way I've acted generally, is, is trying to be positive. Say, look, we're let's talk about ideas. Let's talk about what we can do to fix things. What, what are the things that we have in common to reach out to somebody who's the NDP or PC or Green and say, look, we're a small province. We're, we're big in terms of geography, but small in terms of population. We can't afford to be divided the way we are. But in that way, you're hoping that the policy, and a lot of policy, yeah. contributes to 
the benefit of whomever wins in Tuesday's election. That you've had a set of ideas here and goals and hopefully you can have influence, if not at the polls on Tuesday, certainly at policy after Tuesday. No, I think we want to have influence at the polls as well. I mean, part of it is we also have, uh, we are stronger and better organized than we've been in a generation, right? So we have, we're going into this with official party status. We have four seats, the NDP only have 12. Um, and so, and we actually are better organized, have bigger campaigns, have people with, with lots of ID vote um, and, and people on the ground to be able to pull that vote as well. So uh, I don't, the hard part is that usually uh, when you come to elections, especially anytime in the last five years, there's often a big break in the last week. And it depends where it goes. So, and I do think that uh, the NDP support is incredibly soft. And the only reason that people want really want to vote NDP is because uh, they want to keep the PCs out. But the fact is that there are a bunch of places where if they vote Liberal, they'll be, do a better job of keeping the PCs out and we can actually pick up seats from the PCs. A lot of uh, the conversation between Pallister and Canoe has been on health care, that Pallister went forward with a plan that successive healthcare administrators in this province said we should do simply because six ER is not efficiently either economically or from a health care perspective as far as delivering the best health care. It's been noted in other cities to have two or three well-staffed ERs and to have the diagnostics available on a 24-hour basis and let's face it if you showed up at a community hospital ER room with anything complicated you'd get packaged and transferred anyway. You've said, well, wait a minute, we want to reverse those cuts. Yep. How far would you reverse those cuts? And what are your ideas when it comes to dealing with the health care issues that we have? Because in almost every category, we were at or near the bottom. Yep. So there's a bunch of, that, that's, a, that's a lot to talk about. But if you look at where, where other cities where they say, oh, well, we have fewer ERs, they're extremely well distributed. So if you look at a map of Winnipeg, we now have three ERs in a row and you have nothing in the north of the city and you have nothing in the south of the city. If you look at Vancouver or Calgary or other places, they're well distributed so that you can easily get to each one of them. That's not what we have in Winnipeg. The we other don't is, have the traffic issues that those cities have. Uh, like the rush hour here is 15, 20 minutes. But if you're, but if you're north of the tracks and you're stuck in, a, in an ambulance on the Arlington Bridge, that's an issue. The other is that there are actually services being provided in Concordia and in Seven Oaks where you have people with hip and knee replacements and you have people with uh, kidney uh, treatments. And right now, if something goes wrong, you have to call 911 in a hospital, right? And that to me makes no sense. So, th and that's the concern. So either you're gonna lose those programs or they're gonna go someplace else. Uh, and we, look, we've taken a different approach, partly because what the PCs have proposed is yet more centralization. And they've actually taken power away from the minister and they're handing it all to this new layer of bureaucracy. It, it's one of the strangest things about healthcare in Manitoba is we have four layers of healthcare bureaucracy and two of them were created by PC governments. One is the RHAs and the other is shared health services. And one of the problems of that is nobody knows who's in charge and it's not clear who's accountable when something goes wrong. So part of what we've said is to say, like, let's take shared health, shared health and we're going to take RHAs and we're going to move them back into the Manitoba health so, and then at the same time give more power back, decision-making power back to community hospitals. And even today, the other thing about uh, when you talk about our expenses and how our would outcomes, reduce, How would that reduce the weights in the sense that you already have RHAs in the past that have competed with each other for 
very scarce resources. The one thing I understand about what Shared Health is doing is that they are finally putting together um, a plan for healthcare services in this province, yeah. something we've never had in Manitoba. Well, and part of it is that RHA's ration care, right? So some of it is we'd actually give, and we'd, we, the other part of it is we'd fund hospitals differently. In, in It's called per patient funding. And they've done it in BC, Alberta, Ontario. And if you look at the wait times, our wait times for healthcare, sorry, for hips, uh, for hip and knee replacements have gotten worse and worse and worse over the last three years. And, they, and they're much better in those other provinces because they actually pay people for procedures in those provinces. So that's another part of it is one of the things we've done is ration healthcare. So we say, well, we can only have this many hip replacements and this many knee replacements. And if you're stuck on a waiting list, tough. Well, under the new system, it would actually reward hospitals for doing a better job. So if they can, if they can provide more hip and knee replacements to people, they get more money for it. And that's, that's what we want. The other is that we have a big focus on prevention. Today we just announced, it's an important idea, the fact that you can reach a primary care doctor within 20 minutes of travel. And one of the things that the PCs have done is reduced access to primary care. I mean, this, people say, well, what do we do have to do to get rid of ER weights? Well, give people someplace else to go. But instead they've ended up shutting down a bunch of urgent cares, access clinics, and made it harder. So the only place you have to go is in ER. Um, and we know that if people can be, uh, it, you know, it's an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, but it really means that when somebody has diabetes or if they have a mental health problem, if you catch it early, you can save 17% in a year by providing better care, better primary care, better, and so people are actually, you come in, well, what's wrong with you? Well, you have diabetes, and if you can get type two diabetes and you get them uh, you know, eating right and exercising, they may be able to survive with no medication instead of ending up on dialysis. With Liberal leader Dougal Lamont, Decision Manitoba 2019, the podcast, I'm Richard Cluche, and when we talk about healthcare, there's so much emphasis on emergency care, reactive care, and not enough on prevention. If you look at the budget, the money's been going up for dialysis and it's going down for prevention. And that's exactly the wrong way. It's like saying, well, you know what, we're not gonna spend so much on sprinkler systems. We're gonna spend all our money putting out uh, five alarm fires. And that's like when I, I'm, that's the thing I'm struck by when I go across this province is that how far things are left to go till we're always dealing with things in a crisis. And, it, and for diabetes, it's shocking. It is shocking. We have uh, in Northern Manitoba, 20 times the national rate of diabetes. And so people are, they're going blind, having heart attacks, strokes, and amputations. All of it's preventable if we actually treat people properly for diabetes. And you, you should argue that it's the federal government that has to also take up the, the cause on this as well in partnership yep. with local communities and provincial and, and the federal government to invest in these communities. Absolutely, but um, I talked about this today. There's a kind of Jordan's principle that should really be um, at play here is that there was a big fight over uh, a young, sick boy. Who's going to pay for his care? The province of the feds. The fact is, every First Nations person is a Manitoban, right? And there are a huge number of services that, um, whether it's infrastructure, health, or education, where there's overlap, and the province gets money from the federal government solve for the it. Solve the problem first, then argue about who pays for it later. But exactly, solve the yeah, problem yeah, first. yeah. And then that's it. Is that? And there are amazing examples. There's a place up in Opaskwe Creation, just across the river from the Paw. They have an amazing clinic and they reduced hospitalizations, ER visits, amputations, and they saved $700,000 in flights. Because this is, the other thing about it is that the amount of money we spend on travel, hunt, uh, the Life Flight program, which is an, e, uh, an air ambulance, it's $100 million a year every year. And that's just for that one program. 
So part of what we want to say is, look, if, you're at, if we can find ways to have primary care work in the community, uh, whether it's a doctor or a nurse practitioner or some kind of clinic where people can do the work they need to, if you can actually get seen and treated 20 minutes from where you are, instead of having to pay $3,500 for a plane ticket, which is what it costs to fly from Northern Manitoba, your, the savings are, are absolutely, the potential savings are colossal. Does that also include uh, a nurse or nurse practitioner to be able to be linked to a physician maybe in Brandon, Winnipeg or Thompson via a, a smartphone? Yeah. That we need to invest in new technology and yeah. we have to get rid of the regulatory barriers yeah. that right now are impediments to that. Well, it's not just that there are regulatory barriers, is that uh, is that there's no connection. Uh, so we've said we would invest um, in connecting the north, but look, it needs to be rural Manitoba too. If I drive to Brandon, I can't get a cell signal between Portage and Brandon. I can't get a cell signal on the highway to North Dakota. But if you go to, uh, to Saskatchewan, you can. So part of it is we need to invest and you could have massive savings, but get, there, the networks already exist. There's a thing called telehealth where you can talk to a specialist in Winnipeg. You don't have to travel. But if you don't have internet, you can't get it. So Flin Flon, 5,000 people, is an entire town with no high-speed internet. And it's like that across the north. At the same time, Hydro actually owns its own internet company with fiber. So we can and should be connecting these, these communities up. It would make a difference for, for uh, economic development, health, and education. Talk about economic development and uh, infrastructure, because there will yeah. be m many Manitobans who are saying that uh, how do you strike that balance between um, spending what you can afford, but uh, the infrastructure deficit that we have, not only on roads and sewers, but um, all sorts of yep. facilities, hospital infrastructure, etc. What would the Liberals do differently? So we've we would commit to a, a $1.6 billion a year every year for 10 years. So part of it is to have a sustained plan, so, which also provides uh, you know, municipalities and companies with the ability to know that they're going to be secure. Right? And that right now, that's, that hasn't been happening, that there have been promises made and then they're, they're pulled back. I, I mean, there are, I've heard from companies, there are companies going bankrupt because there's no road work because the Palliser government cut road work by $150 million. The, the thing about it, I sometimes, because people sometimes say, well, you know, you got to run your, your government runs like a household. Well, imagine we live in a leaky house and, and we're paying a lot for gas. And if we want to save money, that our only option is to turn down the heat. Well, we have another option is we could take out, a, you know, a loan. We could insulate our house and then we'd all be warmer for longer. And we could even turn up the heat and still spend less. Like that's what, that's what infrastructure funding is supposed to do. So it's actually okay if you're borrowing at a low rate and you're getting a higher rate of return. That's what, you know, the heavy construction association would call smart debt. But the other is that there are all sorts of areas uh, where if we make the investment in this infrastructure, it will return on itself within the year. But also you've got, you have trucks across Manitoba that are traveling at half capacity because they can't make it over a highway, whether it's grain or to a northern, uh, a northern reserve. Um, and there are... Near, near Thompson, there's a, a promising mine, but it needs a road to it. And if you don't have a road to it, that ain't going to happen. But you're talking about a potential billions of dollars of investment that could be unlocked by a few million dollars in spending on roads. So we've proposed, we strike a, a task force with industry and municipalities and First Nations and say, look, what are the things we can get the biggest bang on the buck for right away? What are the, what are the roads, bridges, and whatnot that we're going to be able to fix? Trade routes. Uh, there's a road between the Paw and Saskatchewan 
where again trucks are having it traveling at half capacity so you have to you get half the go away wasp you get half the capacity you're driving twice as often you're spending twice as much on gas it makes no no economic sense for anybody um, so to make those very specific investments to make sure that they happen uh, but the other is that we also need uh, a bigger up, bigger upgrades because we have a bunch of facilities around the province that have that you know they were built in 1970 for the 100th anniversary and they need to be fixed up and um, the third actually is is an accessibility thing about infrastructure because disability matters has been a big issue uh, because there are a lot of people some as they put it uh, either you're disabled or you're the uh, eventually going to be disabled right that that's those are the two people two sorts of people in our community and making sure that we have better access uh, is really important but you know we have to recognize that institutions and businesses may not be able to afford that so we have to should have a fund to help people make things more accessible the wasp by the way listened to you and, and went away oh okay <laughs> when we the wrong talk colors. about education yeah. and there's a task force uh, underway now and while uh, national and international standards are important yeah. Uh, you look at the real determinants of education outcomes, very much like health, yeah. is that um, those children that come from impoverished families are the ones that don't do well in school. Yeah. And what would a liberal government do on the education side from that classroom level right through to administration where a lot of Manitobans think we've got too many school divisions to begin with. Yeah. What would a liberal government do differently in education? Well, I, d I don't want to prejudge the results of the K-12, but I also don't want to be bound by them. Um, I think it was fairly ideological. I think there are some problems with certain school divisions, but at the same time, there's really great programs in some. So you don't want to do this thing where you're just going to lump them all together and you lose what's good. Because there are some school divisions that have done fantastic work. And the other is that when the NDP amalgamated school divisions, you didn't see much of an improvement in quality and costs went up. because it didn't go down like you just ended you up you go don't up you, to right. that level you, everybody goes up to that level, level. Um, the other is that there's a lot of concern around it but you know education is an investment like there are three things people often think of these things as, as, as costs it's like well how are we gonna how can we cut down on infrastructure healthcare or education but there's another side but they're actually would make us competitive that's what makes us competitive as a, as a province that if you have good infrastructure for business and people if you have good education so people can make more money but employers have skilled uh, employees and if people are healthy but we don't have that but that's what that's ultimately what you want to compete on because if you have all those things if you have good infrastructure good healthcare and education it that is what unlocks your economy um, so you need to invest in it but when you're talking about the challenges of people living in poverty one is that we would um, we've, we've recommended a basic a form of basic minimum income to make sure that nobody's living in poverty and get rid of EIA the way it exists because it, it actively stops people from working if people try to work they can either end up paying 70 percent of however much they make or they just end up getting kicked off and lots of people want to work the other is uh, an early childhood education program that would be moved under the department of education so it would be pretty much universal but you'd work with different communities to make sure that people could get it and one of the biggest challenges because we have teachers uh, who are running for us who said look it's, it's literacy and if you if you have kids who are finishing grade two and they don't know how to read then that's trouble but we end up passing kids over and over so that all of a sudden they hit nine grade nine or ten and they still don't know how to read so we want to make sure that for early childhood literacy you have family literacy so you're working with families and that you're making sure that we able to be the goal ideal would be every single kid knows how to read by grade two 
but to find that out and make sure that that's happening. I look at William White School and some of those inner city schools where the Winnipeg School Division has invested time and effort and uh, the Ready to Read program and the other yeah. programs that identify children and vulnerable children early, they're making strides. They're yeah. moving the needle on reading yeah. and as a result of that on uh, mathematics and other subjects, children are engaged, yeah. they're reading early, they want to go to school. Yeah. So it's not rocket science no. in that sense. No. It's really investing in people and programs. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you have to pay the bills. Yeah. You have to be accountable. And it's interesting, a conversation I had earlier with Evelyn Jacks of the Knowledge Bureau and Don Leach of the Business Council of Manitoba, and they said, you know, one of the issues when it comes to the future of Manitoba and keeping the best and the brightest here is when you compare Manitoba to Saskatchewan and that young person that's, if everything else is equal, yeah. you look at take-home pay and you look at income taxes in Saskatchewan as opposed to Manitoba, the gap is too wide. Yeah. How do you begin to make Manitoba more attractive on the taxation side? I think it's about making Manitoba more attractive on the opportunity side. I mean, the reason why, like Alberta, sorry, Saskatchewan and Alberta, they both got oil under the ground so that they can afford to have lower taxes in all sorts of ways, but you also have higher jobs. The, the most important thing we can do because people don't move to Fort McMurray for the low taxes. They move because they can make $300,000 a year as a diesel mechanic, right? And lowering our taxes is not going to move the, the tar sands here. So what we've suggested instead, because there are entrepreneurs that I've talked to in Manitoba, there's a capital drought. What they need is investment. Um, and I sometimes find it, like I know that the PCs are supposed to be business friendly, but you'd think that capitalists would know that you need capital to make businesses work. So we would create a Manitoba Business Development Bank. Uh, it would work exclusively to invest in Manitoba-owned businesses, either not just startups. I mean, sometimes it might be microfinancing, but, but also scale-ups. And the most important thing you want is to have Manitoba-owned businesses that are scaling up here. And they're leaving because they can't get capital. Uh, I've talked to entrepreneurs who are doing this. this you know, they have an order. They have an order from a company and they can't get the working capital they need. So this would help provide that. And it's been successful elsewhere, but I mean, that's how Apple computer got started. Is part of still the yeah. crocus hangover here that governments don't want to touch this stuff? Well, it's, there's been, I mean, it'd be nice to know whatever happened with crocus, but this is a, it is a completely different model. I recognize you have to have a, a political firewall around it, right? <laughs> you have to make sure that it has an abs a crystal clear mandate, that you have multi-partisan people being appointed to, to running it and that it's independent. But North Dakota has one. And Alberta, when people talk about the Alberta advantage, they forget Alberta Treasury Board is a bank owned by the provincial government. It has, it has hundreds of outlets. And it helps businesses get off the ground. And that, to me, is the key. Because we keep on talking about what we have to do on taxation and what we have to do to shrink the size of the public sector. Well, if you say the public sector in Manitoba is too big compared to the private sector, that's exactly the same thing as saying the private sector is too small. And if all you do is shrink the public sector, you're not actually growing the private sector. You have to grow the private sector. And I think that's what makes us different. It's, it's that the idea of a Manitoba Business Development Bank is a, it, the entire point of it is to grow the public sector and to create new Manitoba businesses and new jobs. Because that's, if you wanna, if you wanna create jobs, put money into startups. They're the ones who create the most jobs. If you wanna make them stable, make sure they, they can ec get equity. But I, I talked to, I've talked to a bunch of entrepreneurs and they, they, the issue is if they can't get it here, 
Somebody else will say, well, move to Calgary and we'll give you the money. Move to North Dakota, we'll give you the money. And they'll be successful. And the only thing that's happening is that we're not willing to do that. And that's and so that's we that's one of the things we need to do. That would be it from my point of view, it's it's at the cornerstone of our economic platform. And it's an actual way to build jobs instead of just saying, well, we're gonna and build businesses and not just saying, well, we're gonna build a bridge and hopefully we'll someone will come along. Or we're gonna offer Jeff Bezos one point seven billion dollars like Pallister did, right? Manitoba ownership matters. And that's that's how we have to that's how we have to approach it. That's how we have to build. Instead of always trying to say, what can we do to debase ourselves and cheapen ourselves in order to attract investment? Let's invest in ourselves. Manitoba Liberal Leader Dougald Lamont. Thank you. Liberal Leader Dougald Lamont. And thank you so very much for listening. I'm Richard Cluche. Decision Manitoba 2019, the podcast.